everybody, and welcome back to the Chiluminati Podcast. I can't believe I'm even saying this. Episode 200. Yeah! <laughs> As always, I am one of your hosts, Mike Martin, today joined by the Matt Lucas and David Williams of L.A., Jesse and Alex. How's How it going? do I know the name Matt Lucas? I know, he's I recognize that, that. He's that guy from Bake Off. That's who he is. Those two, ah, okay. they're a duo. They secretly hate each other, you know? Yeah, so you, know. you know what? I think Matt Lucas just got fired from Bake Off, or maybe I don't know. I don't know what's don't going know. on with him. Alex know. is the Matt Lucas, then. All right, yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it. But yes, everybody, it is true. Welcome to episode number two hundred of this fine show, which we've been making for over half a decade now, somehow. So, number one, congrats to us, and number two, please head on over to Patreon.com/slash/TwoMontyPod to support us in tons of wonderful money-based ways. Yes, you and your contributions alone will stymie the constant oncoming creep of our collective imposter syndromes. And in return, we will give you ad-free episodes, mini episodes alongside every new upload, bespoke and unsettlingly beautiful art pieces from much more legit creators than us, and probably one of the worst and weirdest movie watch-along series ever made. Rotten Popcorn is archived in multitudes just for you before they're slowly made public months later. The point is, and this is something of a brand promise here uh, from the Chiluminati, the point is, there's always a surplus. And again, you are a patron or you aren't, and you've been with us all this time. Either way, thank you for the help. That is a lot of episodes. And so, for such a special occasion, and of course, considering the subject matter of tonight's episode, there was no other choice tonight for special guest host than Vigigame Apocalypse's own Michael Raparez, an absolute games industry veteran who's been everywhere from where he is now at Ubisoft News to Games Radar to official Xbox magazine, to PlayStation, the official magazine, to Mac Life. And one time, his great-grandmother kicked a shrouded phantom right through a wall. Michael, welcome to the show. (laughs) That is quite an intro. Thank you. I'm very honored to be here on this very numerically important episode. Uh, So thank you. Thank you. It's a very big number. How are you doing? I'm doing good. yeah, we're uh, pre- prepping for uh, this week's Video Game Apocalypse show, which you're also going to be on, where we're going to talk about ancient aliens in oh, video yes. games. And uh, this has been uh, a series of weird rabbit holes to dive down into this yes. deep lore. Yes. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. Time out. Does this mean what I think this means? I think it does, Jesse. I think it does mean this. It's been almost two years. Stop. June was the first episode of 2021. Is it finally happening? Well, you son of a- Before we get into that, Michael, have you seen anything else? <laughs> have you seen anything else paranormal since last time you were on the show? Um, I remember you said you saw an erect grasshopper at your family barbecue when wow, you were five years old. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I, uh, (laughs) all the way back in 2001 when we last met on this fine show, I I did find a, uh, gross potato bug, uh, while I was cleaning out a drawer. I have no idea how this huge bug got in there, but, uh, I thought it fell on the floor and I thought like, oh, is that like an action figure accessory or something? And I picked it up barehanded and like looked at it really close and was like, this is a wrong thing. I should put it down. And (laughs) that's, that's what it feels like to see a UFO. I think. Yeah. Before I even could see what it was. Was. My brain is like, nope, 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 drop no, it. This is evil. They they have a little bit too much weight to them for me to feel okay touching them. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we talked about it briefly. Michael's got a game podcast, Vigi Game Apocalypse. It's been around forever. It's very good. It totally Vigigame rules. Vigigameapocalypse.com. Uh, we, we just celebrated our 10-year anniversary this hey, year, like a month or so yeah. Wow. So. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And the games industry just gets better and better as time goes on. Yes. It yeah. only continues to improve. Yeah, I don't know if you remember this. Last time you were on, you said that Resident Evil Village was low-key your game of the year so far. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I thought you might be interested to know that Jesse and I just started playing Resident Evil 4 Remake for Scary Game Squad. Did you play it? I did. I loved it. Yeah? We're not very far in, but it seems like so far where we are, it seems very faithful and the graphics are very good. I don't know what Mm -hmm. else to say about it so far. It just seems like the same ass game to me. Yeah, I guess they did cut some stuff uh, toward the end, but most of it I didn't even notice until like some YouTubers pointed it out. So uh, yeah, what's what's there is fantastic. I the think. back the back half of the game, the original one, was its weakest half anyway. I think like yeah. the castle. Part Resident Evil always on. turns like a weird corner about like sixty five percent away through the game, where they're like, by the way, this is like not what you think it is, and there's like a there's like a laboratory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's always a laboratory. Yeah. It's always umbrella. Yeah, there's Somewhere. always a Someone's watching behind the scenes. Indeed. Now, Michael, 
One last interesting thing before we start uh, is that as of this episode, you'll actually become our most frequent guest hosts with three full appearances, even more than Crendor. You have edged him wow. out. And we are honored, uh, number one, that you're here. And two, that this could happen in conjunction with big number 200 episode, wow. which is a good thing also. I feel doubly uh, honored. Thank you. Yeah. So thank you once again for joining us. I, I really do appreciate you helping us all get closure on this. Uh, <laughs> and speaking of episodes. Of course, wouldn't miss yeah, it. Yeah, let's get on with this one, which I think pretty much everyone has been waiting for. I mean, it's in the title of the episode before they even like started hearing our voices. So yeah, this is sure. true. So now, without further ado, finally... After all these years, I present to you, in all seriousness this time, Jesse, this one's for you. That is right, folks. It is time for us to delve deeply into the 1974 Avely UFO abduction case. That's right. The 1974 Avely UFO abduction Can case. Can I? And don't worry. Do I have permission to just I, leave? Don't worry. I know what you're thinking. Can we just, like, leave? And at this time, all I can say, to paraphrase Graham Phillips himself, is, unfortunately, this whole story is true. Okay. So can just I, stick like, with we me. Just, I think we just got Rise of Skywalkered. I think. No, you did happened. not. You the first birth one, of, the first episode was, like, promising and exciting and a little weird, but, you know, hey, I, I could buy into it. The second episode, yeah, right, it aired into some weird territory, made us question where things were going. But it had potential. Are we yeah. about to walk into episode three and the writers changed some point between the last two? I need you to know I've never been so genuinely disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I promise that you're going to feel good by the end of this. I don't blame the yeah. audience for turning it off right now. I saw the books at your house. I was yeah. at your house for like a week. I saw the yeah. redstone and the greenstone book. There's more that there, there's actually five books at my house oh. right now that have to do with this, but we'll get into it in just a minute. This is time for the 1974 Avely UFO encounter. Thank God, Mike. Welcome back. <laughs> Something to remember about this case as we get into it. What's, what's not to love about this? Uh, number one, the people who were involved in this incident did not come forward with their experience until three years after it happened. So it happened in 1974 and uh, we're hearing about it. In 1977. They wanted to wait until the aliens died, I'm guessing. Yeah. But well, but for what it's worth, much like Betty and Barney Hill's initial reluctance to share details of their famous case, and Michael, if you don't know, Betty and Barney Hill is like the, you know, watching uh, fight club in your dorm room of alien UFO cases. It's like the induction to the real shit. <laughs> All right. Well, well, the thing with Betty and Barney Hill, though, Alex, I don't, I'm curious if it's the case for this or not. There was at least like a phone call record of Betty and Barney Hill. They immediately called people. They didn't wait years, but they did wait like a couple of weeks. But they did talk to people who can verify that they were reaching out. Yes, they did talk to people okay. immediately. Uh, there is like a conversation with a family member on record and some other things, but we'll get into it. Uh, but basically, they cited social embarrassment and trauma as a large part of the reason that they hadn't come forward, uh, just like Betty and Barney Hill did. It really wasn't about making money off this and just in case Betty, you think Betty and Barney Hill it. had two such different experiences Barney got absolutely like traumatized and like had weird wounds and shit after Betty's like they didn't get my zipper I didn't understand what my zipper could do they just kept playing yeah. with it yeah like, I, yeah I don't know well, it, poor it, girl, it, man Betty Barney just got fucking slapped onto a machine and oh mm. it was bad times we understand the zipper now <laughs> yeah that's really what it was <laughs> even at the time though that Betty and Barney Hill case was like a big deal and really the only reason they came forward in the first place was because they needed to tell someone a story and they did it all under pseudonym so that they couldn't it couldn't be connected to them in real life uh but according to the guy who actually wrote the original report uh on this case uh that i'm going to be basing it off of from 1978 where he like right after he interviewed them this guy andrew collins uh wrote that the only reason he's publicizing it at all is because at the time it was like a type of UFO encounter was like kind of like the template that was happening all the time. And basically, Collins noticed that similar ones had been happening. Car teleportation, contacts, those are things that happened in the Benny and Barney Hill one. Uh, it's like a, that's what they call it, car teleportations and contacts. Yeah, it's more like lost time and being a little bit down the road from where they were. Yeah, North, uh, like pure X-Files stuff. North, North America, South America, Africa, 
Uh, but there hadn't really been a big triple A sighting in Andrew Collins' home country of Great Britain that had really ticked all the boxes of this trend uh, until this one, which happened in the autumn of 1974, and which lay dormant mostly till three years later when a friend of Andy's was contacted by these people and then brought it to Andy the next time they met in the local UFA, uh, UFO investigation group they were both This in. is what year? 1977 Sorry? is when they're talking about it. It happened in 74, they say? Yeah. Okay, because yeah. 1980 in the UK, which we'll talk about, uh, I really will do a multi-series on, is the Rendlesham Forest incident, which is a government UK run-in with a UFO with like radio recordings of that's them a, going That's one of the big ones. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a, like, that is the, the Roswell of the UK, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, so aside from the car teleportation and abductions and further contacts that I've already mentioned, the two big details that got Andrew Collins really interested specifically in this case was one was a report that the subjects were supposedly uh, enveloped in a green mist that had formed in the, ro in the road. Mm. And two, uh, a reported three hours of missing time on the part of the alleged abductees, who from now on will refer to using pseudonyms as the Avis family. Uh, and Michael, I have a quote here introducing the family uh, from the primary source article from 1978 by Andrew Collins uh, here for you to read. I'm going to drop it into the chat here for you. The whole encounter centers around the Avis family, a very normal, simple, and warm East London family. They live in a semi-detached house in Avely, Essex. That family consists of John, aged 32, his wife Elaine, aged 28, and their three children, Kevin, aged 10, Karen, aged 11, and Stuart, aged 7. Both John and Elaine were born in the London East End area of Stratford. John was educated in a secondary school in Forest Gate, but due to the large classes and inexperienced teachers, he feels he did not have a fair schooling. He liked studying English and making things, in quotes, at school, but was unable to learn either of them satisfactorily. And then we skip a bit, and then it continues. Elaine is a very quiet person. She went to a high school for girls and left at 16 to become an accountant. Then she gave up 11 years ago when she married. Since then, she has been a full-time mother to her three very active children. End quote. So get the fuck up off their backs. <laughs> Can you please just read for me all the time? <laughs> you have a, uh, you're, you've got that Dan Carlin, like, hardcore yes. history yeah. voice. And it's <laughs> That's just what like, I was going for. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Glad you picked up on it. <laughs> I guess some of the other investigators had run into issues trying to talk to these people by phone. Uh, so once Andy was invested in this story, he figured out a way to contact them himself. He set an in-person interview date for the next day, which was Sunday, August 15th, 1977. And he brought along his friend and fellow UFO slash paranormal guy, Barry King, to assist. And Barry King kind of just like got on board with this and was with them all the time for this also. Uh, and he's kind of like, a character that stays in this story. They met up, had an interview, and this sequence of events I'm about to relate to you comes directly from this testimony the Avis, the Avis family gave about it themselves. October 27th, 1974, just under three years earlier, John was in the car with Elaine's father at 8.45 p.m., waiting outside of Elaine's sister Anne's school to pick her up after a school trip to Belgium. Uh except they're running about four hours late now, so they're just sitting there waiting for them. And John is annoyed because he's trying to catch some, like, stage play that was airing on TV that night at 10.20 p.m. Anne uh, wasn't going to be there till 9 p.m. now. She was supposed to be there at, like, 5 or 6, and he still had to drop Anne back off at Elaine's parents' house over in Harold Hill, Essex, before heading home for the night, so... Suffice it to say, the takeaway here is that John was very aware of what time it was that night. Uh, but luckily, by the time they got back in the car uh, after dropping Anne off to head home from Harold Hill, it was only uh, 9.50 p.m. Uh, on a clear night, very mild, dry weather, leaving them a full 30 minutes to make the normally 20-minute long drive before the show started with time to spare. So John's feeling pretty decent. He's got a 10-minute window that he's got here so he's going to make his thing he's feeling good and he's got his entire family with him his wife and his three kids all in the car headed back home with him along hackton lane south of Hornchurch, a very familiar route home for the avises in their white voxel vix victor estate car big white car uh 
John and Elaine are seated up front in the front seat. Three kids are in the back, but it was late and only Kevin, the middle child, was up and looking out the windows as his dad wondered aloud why no matter where they were going that night, they weren't seeing any cars on the road at all. So one mile south of Hornchurch, uh, they now driven about a mile outside of where they were at or past that town, Hornchurch. Kevin began talking about a light that he could see, quote, above the houses. And eventually, John and Elaine were able to see it too, quote, about 25 to 35 degrees above the horizon. Uh, Oval-shaped, pale blue iridescent light, like a big, quote, big star over the top of the houses to their left. So that's kind of the vibe of what's going on. They're seeing it kind of through structures. It's very bright, but they can't quite make out exactly what it is. And the color is unmistakably like a strange blue color. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, left out the window where they are on the road means it's off to the east. It's 500 yards away from the car at the furthest. And they said this thing, they first, they were looking at it and it was bright, but it, you know, they could barely see it. So they thought it was Venus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. A lot of people mistake that. Like, it's a very easy thing. If you've never seen it before, like, what is that? Yeah, it's just it's Venus is cool. It's I wouldn't expect that to come to mind in the average person's brain. Like, what am I looking at? Venus? Like, uh, not even as an example of like three weeks ago when there's some some like UFO thing, people were throwing up on TikTok of like vi videos of this like UFO. It's it was Venus and Saturn and people didn't understand that they were both there and they thought it was weird. And yeah, but people just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 definitely seen things in the sky that. I looked it up and they were like, oh, that's just literally always there. And you just never noticed it before. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but they thought it was Venus at first, but then they realized it wasn't Venus because it was way too bright. And then they thought it was a helicopter light, like in the X-Files, uh, which at that point, it sort of, quote, started, quote, stopping and starting. Uh, but it flew along in the same. It was like following the car, but it was like kind of going and stopping and going and stopping like a like herky jerky almost like claymation kind of like yeah exactly and it was traveling along the road with them and as they watched it at this point they started to realize for the first time maybe they might be having a ufo encounter right now uh as you know they they are people who believe they've seen things in the sky before nothing like this but like you know in the same way that i've seen stuff in the sky that i don't know what it is They've said, oh, you know what? We've seen stuff like this before. Maybe this is a UFO. Maybe this is a real UFO. Uh, even referred to it as a UFO out loud in the car. They both remember doing that. Uh, but other than kind of just drive along and keep an eye on the thing, they just keep heading on home. And it's just Kevin in the seat behind them looking with his two siblings sleeping next to him and the other two. Yeah, they're just, they're just out. Uh, and eventually they're driving along this road and they get to this place called Park Farm Road. And they end up having to make like a 90 degree turn. Uh, and they remember it because it's right on the corner of a place called the White Heart Pub. And they remember people being at the pub, but they don't remember there being any cars anywhere on the road. And they pulled past it and turned 90 degrees. And amazingly, the light actually followed them around the 90 degree angle, kept the same distance with them, made the turn with them, uh, and they just kept driving. Uh, and... As they were driving now for the next mile or so, they started to realize that the light was actually sort of shifting course a little bit now, and it was kind of veering towards them on the road at about a 50-degree angle coming down towards them, uh, at which point John got sort of cautious and started slowing down because of how scared he started to feel. Um, and then you got to a point where the road dipped down below the sides of the road where you now can't see the sky anymore and there's like bushes above. And they went down in a kind of ditch like that for a while. And when they came out the other side, uh, the, the, the craft was gone. And uh, they kind of were like, oh, wow, the sighting is over. And they all kind of relaxed for a second. But then after about a mile of driving, they looked up and looked at each other and realized that they couldn't hear anything anymore besides the radio. They couldn't hear the tires on the road. They couldn't hear the engine running. The car had been totally silent. Uh, and Mathis, here is a quote for you to read about what they saw Wait, as they again, came just around for setup, the bend. Just for clarity, they're by themselves yeah. on the road. There's no one else around. Right. And how many people are in the car? Five. Three kids, two, two adults. So they're, And two are sleeping? Two kids are asleep. Gotcha. Okay. And they, come, they slow down. They come around this like 30-degree bend in the road. 
and uh, this is what they, this is what happens. As they came through the bend, they could see no more than 30 yards in front of them and covering the whole road, a thick mist or gas or fog. It was dense green and banked about eight to nine feet high and was bordered on the left-hand side by thick bushes. On the right, it seemed to curve down to the ground just behind the thin line of trees along the road's verge. The top of the bank was flat and the bottom was touching the ground. So this is like a zone of pure fog, if you can imagine that. This- and that's weird. See, you know, just kind of like dipping into my well of knowledge of useless UFO abductions. Uh, the silence is very common, like utter silence. You can't hear anything in the woods. You don't hear any noise on the on the road. Suddenly you're alone, very eerie. And it's like everything left the vicinity. That's common. Fog? Not so much. I can't yeah. really think off the top of my head uh, uh, an abduction case that involved fog. Other than the other than the semen case, the the alien jizz case, which is not really fog, but, jizz, but like that's not goo. that's not like this. No. Yeah. Well, didn't expect to go there. I was going to say, like, it could just be location. Oh, yeah, it definitely could just be temperature. Yeah. But, you know, it also could be alien jizz. They're describing this as they're describing this as like not see through, like green, swirly, thick. They say fog, but they also say mist and they also say gas. As somebody who lived in New England almost all of his life and went and worked at Dunkin Donuts at four in the morning and three in the morning, the fog can get so thick. You can't see anything in front of you. And it has happened countless times, especially in New England. Like, it is so thick. You have to just, like, you're looking at the lines on the road. Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've been in, I've been in. Fog yeah, yeah. So, like, it too. definitely can happen. Yeah. Uh, but it didn't, the way that they're describing it, it seemed unnatural to them. And they're from fucking England. Yeah. So, fair, fair. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, like, fair. this is, like, something that feels like a zone that they entered that has, like, borders. What is that? Jesse's holding up a quarter of his phone. Oh, I, 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 I the other day. Here in LA, I took a photo. What you see, that's my street, like the side street. Everything beyond it is invisible because the fog. Wow. Like, we, I, yeah, I think we all know what, how creepy that is. That, that silent oh, yeah, hill it's super vibe. Scary. I literally mm-hmm. stopped to take a photo of it and put it on my phone because I was like, yo, what is that? <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. So they turn the bend into this weird green fog. And uh, just as soon as everything gets quiet and they notice the, the mist, the radio just absolutely shits itself. Yep. Smoke comes yep. out of the radio, wires start crackling, and it's such an intense sound, and there's so much light and flashing from it that John eventually has to get in there and like rip some cables out to make it stop. Mm. And then, while still moving at about 30 miles an hour, fully enveloped in this unnatural green gas, all the lights in the car go dead, and the car, the car quote, jerked violently. It just sort of like one like big, like, yeah, like one big move and then uh they all felt it and then once everything settled uh the two kids were still asleep uh kevin was now standing on the floor of the car behind them in the like well beneath the chair but the other two kids like i said undisturbed and for the first uh the the few seconds that they were fully inside the mist after that first big jolt they suddenly felt light they suddenly felt cold they couldn't tell if they were moving the windows were up everybody felt like a weird tingling sensation in their body it got totally silent and then boom there was a feeling quote like a car going over a humpback bridge and they were suddenly back on the road a half a mile down from where they were and the mist was completely gone in an instant uh and they just you know reality was back so loss of time is what Mm. you're saying well yeah so so things get a little strange actually though first so John swears that for the first half mile that he was back in the car from White Post Wood to Running Water Wood, he was alone in the car. And Elaine's memory goes along with that. She remembers regaining awareness at Running Water Woods. So where he says she popped into the car, that's where she remembers popping into the car. What's the what's the distance between the two? A half mile. Do you, how fast would you say they're about, I mean like- about 30 miles an hour? Yeah, about 30 so miles an hour. So it wouldn't have been that long. I was trying to think, like, if you're alone in the car, wouldn't you be like, and like yeah. but it wouldn't have been that long if you're dazed. Yeah. I can, tr- I've driven some places where I've been, like, I, on the top of a hill and then suddenly end up on the other side of the hill. And I was like, did I fall asleep? on? Like, yeah, I've definitely been there. Yeah. I'm kind of surprised they didn't slam on the brakes the second they saw the green fog, but instead thought, like, that's a good thing to drive our three children through. Yes. We don't know what it is, but it's probably nothing bad. (laughs) It's probably just like that fog outside of Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Um, And uh, 
So basically, so basically, that's he just pops in. Chino miss, man. They yeah, think they really remember. They the think powder. they remember something about. They think they remember something about somebody asking if the kids are were okay, uh, but they don't know who said it. Um, and uh, then, but once they were all in the car again, everything was like very mundane. You know what I mean? The weird feeling was totally gone, and they were just kind of like, okay, back to work, back to back to life. And they got home. Mm. Uh, very confused about what had just happened. Everybody was hazy a little bit about it, except that John and Elaine and Kevin were awake uh, and uh, Karen and Stuart were asleep the whole time. That's the one thing they all know for sure is that they were the three awake ones. The kids were asleep. Uh, but other than sort of feeling kind of scared and nervous about what had happened and knowing that something weird had happened, they didn't really feel anything physical. Uh, that night, John <laughs> fixed his radio back up, rewired it and double checked all his lights in his Victor estate car uh, and making sure they work properly before he went to bed. Uh, but just before they all conked out, Elaine looked at the clock and noticed the time. And rather than being about 10.30 p.m., which it should have been based on what they experienced, it was already 1 a.m., which Elaine is pretty sure she double-checked by calling the talking phone clock line thing. That's called Oh, my God, Tim I remember that, actually. Yeah. Uh, but she isn't 100% on whether or not she did it, but she thinks she has a memory of doing it. Interesting. This is very, this really is echoes of the Betty and Barney Hill. They return yeah. home kind of confused. They try to go about normal. They notice the watch is like yeah. the time is weird and they kind of like take their shoes off in a weird place. Like very, very similar. <laughs> the perfect subject matter for episode 200 of the Chaluminati podcast. <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, I'm all in on that. Always. Yeah. Uh, so the next day, uh, Elaine tells her mom about what happened. Uh, she calls her mother, and that's how we know that it actually happened is because there's that record of her calling her mom. She does not mention the missing time because she's too embarrassed to like entertain questions about what happened to that time. And uh, John skipped work, didn't get out of bed until 11 a.m. That, that morning. Uh, but other than feeling a little tired, everyone was fine. The kids went to school, no problem, had a normal day. Uh, though within a year... Their white Vauxhall Victor estate, which they had already owned for over 12 months without any issues, regularly started malfunctioning, lost a crankshaft, shattered multiple clutches. Finally, they ended up tossing it into a junkyard before the end of 1975. So whatever happened... Did they have any health issues in that year? The family? Yeah. Uh, not quite, but okay. there, there was some other stuff that happened that we'll get into in just sure, a sure. second. Sure, sure, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, uh, I'm just cross-referencing in my brain. <laughs> Back in the modern... Day of this article in 1977, Andy, the writer, he cross-checked the date of Anna's Belgium trip with the school and confirmed uh, that that day was the right day uh, and also was able to use that date to confirm that both BBC and BBC Two happened to be broadcasting stage play performances that night at 10.20 p.m. And he even drove the route home they took from Haver uh, Harold Hill to Avely, which he timed at exactly 22 minutes for the nine-mile trip. And he noted all the different bends and features in the road mentioned in the story made sense. Uh, he saw the bends. He saw the 90 degree turn. He saw the dip uh, below the road. He saw all that stuff. It's boots on the ground journalism. I respect it. That's a, that's a lot of like little details to go and confirm. Yeah. And there's actually a lot of maps and graphs of the area drawn specifically for this article. And it's all really good stuff. So uh, once the episode drops on the channel, I'll upload a PDF of the whole article on subreddit. You guys can see it. I'll give you guys that uh, in the you know, in the chat eventually too, if you guys want to see it. Um, but just suffice it to say, he very much substantiated this story with like proper research. So that part is actually good. Uh, and uh, everybody can go on subreddit, cross-reference, go, ooh, oh, where in the hell is the green stone, man? What the fuck is this? This is a stupid bullshit episode. Uh, but you know, what I always say is, uh, it's not the destination, uh, you know, but it's the friend's that we make along the way, right, Michael? Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Can uh, we have, how about patrons? Patrons, do you agree with that? Okay, because yeah. um, yeah. we are beholden to you. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Do we know for sure that the green mist wasn't coming from the green? I mean, hey. not a hundred percent. Not a hundred percent for sure. That's how not... do we know when someone's no longer your friend? <laughs> <laughs> no one's asked. No one's sure. No one's, no one's sure yet. The connection. Uh, but they, they cut off their fingers when they you try to talk to them. Yeah, but also, That's... but also, don't worry. We are we are actually getting there. I promise. I'm a little stinker, but I'm not just messing with you for my own sake. Uh, I'm doing it for everyone's sake, and I'm doing it from a place of generosity, so don't worry. Now, there weren't any, immediately, there weren't any immediate effects following the incident. Uh, like, no, like in the Barty and Betty Hill case, there was like some like, his pee-pee hurt, 
They had some like weird, like, like medical issues, confusion, strange effects noted uh, in the weeks following the case. Uh, but in this case, that's not really what happened. However, there were like huge personality shifts and goal changes that occurred in almost everyone in the family uh, soon after. Uh, basically, before Christmas, in the months after it went down, John had a nervous breakdown. Uh, it came out of nowhere, caused him to give up his job. Uh, and he remained unemployed for almost a year until the September of 1975, when a job he had been wanting as a sort of dream of his for many years, which was like working with people with special education needs. Uh, this job just sort of fell into his lap one day and he kept this job for like two years. Uh, but the reason that he quit was because he got in a dis like a, in a, in a disagreement with management because in his private life, he had shifted completely into this like sort of art person, creative person. And he got really into the idea of teaching people arts and crafts. And he got in like a sort of like, anti-capitalist political disagreement with his work and that's why he quit and he became like this poet and he got like new confidence and he just like totally shifted his whole life same month that he got that job elaine also went through a big change uh, enrolled in college that same month uh in september of 1975 and even kevin that month reversed his sort of low reading scores and became like a reader at far ahead of his uh, normal reading level, uh, all in a, around September 1975. Sounds like they had a family mushroom trip that they all forgot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, which actually I, I love because the psychedelic aspect of aliens is a so fucking interesting. Trauma also does this. Oh, uh, you know, God, so, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so what about the kids? Well, the the whole family became super health conscious and vegetarian. Pretty much, they became disgusted by the smell of meat. Except for baby Stuart, age seven, who was the only one who wasn't made ill by eating this stuff. He remained a meat eater the whole time, and they supported mm -hmm. him. But uh, other than Stuart, they turned militantly against all their friends who were eating meat. They tried to convince people not to kill animals anymore. They became like extremely active environmental activists. John, cold turkey, gave up a 60 to 70 cigarette a day smoking habit. Uh, around the same time he had his nervous 60 breakdown. To 60? 60 to 70 cigarettes a day. I knew somebody Cold like turkey. that, man. Wow. I, knew some, I knew somebody yeah. like that. Oh, he man. He kicked it. He kicked it. Uh, Just and that, like lighting each one off the old one. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Always having multiple. Sometimes he had like two going at once. That's really? so fucking many in a day. He, 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 he had his nervous breakdown around that same time. Uh, they also both gave up drinking. Uh, besides that, like, very very ceremonial type special occasions they would still drink like religious reasons and stuff like that and they became extremely sensible about their attitude towards going to the doctor and being like we have this great opportunity to go to the doctor but we shouldn't use it too much we shouldn't like depend on it too much we should only go for serious things and we should take care of ourselves we should live healthily and all this stuff and it's just like totally a different vibe than where they were at before this happened uh, they also uh from a separate angle began reporting being followed by three specific cars wherever they went uh, for about a year and a half. Small red sports car, a blue Jaguar, and a large white Ford executive-style town car. And this occurred almost constantly, quote, well into the summer of 1975. They even called the police once on a white Cortina that was outside their house with two men in it parked across the street one night. The men were talking so loudly that it was bothering them inside their house. And only about five minutes after they called at 1.05 a.m., someone knocked on their door saying they were the police. And they were like, how did you get here so fast? And they were like, what do you mean? You called us. Uh, but they didn't come in a police car. And John looked out at them through the door and he saw one of the guys looking through his mailbox. So he didn't come out. And after a while, he just heard a bunch of slamming doors and everybody drove away. So that was another weird thing. See, saying this part with the people following him around, my, my next thought is, if not aliens, right? The thought is... MK Ultra, obviously, but hmm. you think we know the during MK Ultra and further, we dosed our own soldiers with LSD. We 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 definitely hit civilians with all kinds of fun drugs that they never knew about. I wonder if this might be something more of like that kind of like late night government experience, gassing some people, seeing what happens. It, yeah. They hallucinate, they lose yep. time, but it hits that like mushrooms do, or LSD does, where sometimes you realize like a oneness with things and a more a bigger respect for life, etc. 
like the the CIA dosed them with hippie gas and Literally, was observing yeah. them afterward. And it's like, well, <laughs> seeing what it's it does. not it's not fast enough to be applicable in warfare. No, no. The, the, what happens is the soldiers just march in different directions and giggle a mm-hmm. lot. Yeah, <laughs> XJ thirteen. <laughs> the government marijuana strain that was leaked from the research facility and brought to your dispensary. Basically, to substantiate that actually even more, John was also regularly stopped by the police throughout 1975 and given a slip asking him to produce his identification documents at the local police station within five days. And each time he would go and he would do it. And though the forms, they both agreed the forms look real, he and the cop, the police were confused as to where he was getting them. He was getting aggressive with the cops. The cops were getting aggressive with him because they thought he was like fucking with them. And he thought that they were fucking with him. Uh, And they never expected him when he came in. So they had no record of him coming in. And he eventually had to like complain to the constable of Essex eventually to stop it from happening somehow. Uh, So then eventually they started, uh, they stopped harassing him after like a year of doing that. Uh, And then over the next three years and into 1977, uh, where we pick up the story, Stuff started happening around the house that really started making the Aviuses feel like they needed to get past their trauma, get past their social embarrassment, and tell somebody about the abduction. Because it was starting to become a little bit more than they could handle around the house, and it was freaking them out. Uh, Started out household items disappearing without a trace and appearing in weird places days later. I know what's happening now. Oh, okay, 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 okay. I see where we're going. Door handles started turning. Objects lifting off of surfaces and dropping back down, like after floating for like three inches, uh, you know, that kind of stuff was happening. Then one day it took a turn when Elaine was talking with her sister on the phone and the door flew open and crashed against the wall. And it happened again while John was also around and he noticed that the kitchen was filled with a sort of lavender smell, uh, kind of interesting. Uh, And ever since that first time uh, he smelled it, he started to notice that a sickly sweet smell would like waft through the house uh, every once in a while throughout the day for just a second. He would get this weird sort of perfumey sort of nasty wet smell uh, every once in a while in his house. And uh, this thing started happening where John and Elaine would hear this loud droning sound coming right outside their house just after midnight where it would start sounding like it was like a plane flying by in the, in the distance, how sometimes that can like buzz the whole sky, you know that sound. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. it kind of gets closer and closer and closer till it's directly outside of one side of their house, and then it makes a really loud sound as it like goes over the top of their house, all the way to the other side of their house, and then buzzes the other side of the house. And they'd be so scared in the house of this while it was happening that they would like sneak up to the windows and look but they would never see anything in the sky it would be totally just look like nothing was there they just would hear it that's interesting especially the buzzing part because the buzzing is something that betty and barney hill uh experienced on the car ride uh before as they were getting abducted yeah uh, they said that sometimes this buzzing and humming sound would last over a half hour which is pretty crazy to think about. That would drive me insane. I would want, Hmm. I'd leave the house. (laughs) There was also uh, uh, another sound that would happen in the house that uh, Elaine's sister, Anne, also reported being present for. That was a sort of rustling, clicking presence. Not just a sound, but almost like a presence that would like react to them in physical space and move around the house with them in a way where they could always tell you what part of the room it was in when it was there. Uh, So that was a pretty creepy thing. Uh, Kevin also witnessed a, a similar presence in the house. He saw his as a clown in white that stood next to his bed. Uh, yeah, though that's the worst. This was this was during the clicking time. He described it as a clown, but Kevin's a ten year old, so who knows, right? Uh, but the cl- this this is going on the same time as the clicking is happening, and eventually the clicking evolved into a like Morse code like clicking that both John and Elaine heard at around twelve thirty a.m seemingly coming from the center of their bedroom like almost like a you know sort of rhythmic sort of clicking like that sounded very clearly like language though when they tried to transcribe it into dots and dashes it wouldn't make sense it didn't it didn't really like translate into anything coherent pan out into any sort of known sort of Mm -hmm. language like that uh and then eventually andrew collins witnesses some stuff himself over at the house uh he's bringing them home from one of their sessions that they did together one night and he Decides to crash on their sofa for a little bit before driving home. And he hears a bunch of like clattering and banging from the kitchen. And he just decides to like 
lay there and like not react to it and just be like really sort of frozen and scared. And then he was like, after that happened, he was contacted in his bed by something that he said, moved through his whole body from the top of his head down to his feet and relaxed him and gave him a sense of like, don't worry about that. You're going to be okay. Uh, before it faded away into the night. Eventually, uh, now kind of, he's fully convinced that something's happening here. Uh, so Andrew Collins starts to put the pieces together. And when John and Elaine started reporting odd recurring dreams about being operated on by, quote, small, ugly-looking things that reminded them of gnomes and that they were running tests on them in some kind of formal operating theater while they were completely incapable of any movement or speech, he recommended some hypnotic regression for the couple. Uh, and all of them, and of all of them, John was the only one who would ever agree to do it, which he did several times with a Dr. Leonard Wilder, who was a published author on the topic and also a dental surgeon who was really <laughs> interested in reincarnation <laughs> and regression. Got to make sure you have huh. a main gig for your side gig. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, I feel like you probably make a lot more money doing like braces and root canals. Um, yeah, you do. I'm sure, oh, hip sure. Hip hypnotism people. sounds like it was a fun hobby for a while. That but you can also, serious. you can always be the ex an expert on two things. You know what I mean? Oh, no, yeah, of course. I'm not saying yeah. you can't. Sure. Sure. Mm -hmm. It's like the so, times when barbers were also your surgeons, you know? Yeah, ex it's exactly like this is like uh, your uh, regressive hypnotist is also your surgeon. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, okay. So they all had a meeting and suddenly while they're talking about it, not under hypnosis or anything, but Elaine starts remembering the three of them, uh, John, Elaine, and Kevin standing in a large room with curved walls in front of a blue car. And she remembered this small, ugly person in the room with them. And then she started drawing these other taller beings that were on higher walkways around them that look like they have mermaid scales on their heads and masks like Scorpion and Sub-Zero over their mouths that are like taller and wearing like silver suits around them on balconies. Um, and then it felt like the small ugly one was kind of like some sort of attendant or servant and that the tall ones were more uh, kind of like what's, what's the, the Kaminoans from Attack, <laughs> Attack of the Clones? Yeah, uh, yeah the big yeah. long-necked ones. Yeah. That, those mm -hmm. except with Mortal Kombat masks on <clears throat> It's a, uh, just an mm. yeah, absolute glaring weakness from evolution from those, yeah. those yeah. species. <laughs> Reptilian ninjas. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, suddenly John perks up as she's drawing these pictures and he starts correcting her on how she drew the arms. And then they kind of both start remembering it. And then at this point, John's like, okay, I will be hypnotized. We will try three times to regress on three separate dates to see if we can make it happen and get some consistent stories. So they decide to do this. Uh, during the first session, uh, they didn't really end up regressing John. They, he, he got hypnotized, but they couldn't get him to like fully regress. Uh, but he did recall a, quote, large circular blue object with a skin across it and two arms with rocks on its outside. So uh, that's one thing he, 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 he pulled from the session. And then, quote, a gentleman in an Arab-like headdress holding a circular red light, standing in front of hills or mountains. Uh, so those are two oh, things that he... Wait, what? Yeah, what? A, a gentleman in an Arab-like headdress holding a circular red light, standing in front of hills or mountains. There are full so, lights. <laughs> okay. Standing in front of hills and mountains is like throwing me a off. Blue orb with skin. But he's also, they're also in like a, a, a theater, like an operating theater at the same time this is he he remembers being in the operating theater but they didn't really communicate through words more through images and he's just trying to relay some of the images that he received from these people okay so these are okay so he's like he's sitting there just like having visions of the future he, he said he was asking them questions and they were like telling him things got you okay that's more common i guess that makes yeah. sense more sense to me yeah so i can i can, I can at least parse that so the first attempt was kind of a failure, but they did get that. Uh, but during the second attempt, however, regression was achieved. And rather than just tell you what happened, Michael and Jesse are going to reenact it for you now using the actual transcript of the, section, of the session. Michael, you're going to be LW for Leonard Wilder, the dental surgeon slash regressive hypnotist. And Jesse, you're John for John Avis. <laughs> Good luck, boys. 
Now, talk about the car and the first experience you had as you located the light driving down the road. You see a light low. It appears to be following you. It's on... just a light. On... on left. Yes, talk about it. It was low, bright, and not one color. Following, and I... I couldn't see it, and... Only Elaine saw it, and boy, move uh, across in front, and I saw it clear, and move forwards fast down the road, and saw a light, thought it was a light, a, a lamppost, I'm mumbling now, a light went, I uh, had pulled wire, and there was thick mist, very, very thick, and green? Lummy? <laughs> Lummy? Short, capitalized Lummy. Lummy. And no lights and no, no noise all around. You went into the mist and then? Yes, you think you would break it, green mist, but I, I went in. Into big room. <laughs> uh, uh, back on car? Uh, and told that. Children, uh, two children, all right, not to worry. Can you describe them, parentheses, the beings? They were tall, and they were peaceful. Their clothing? One piece. Color? No, it didn't seem to have a color. Did you see their hair? No hair, uh, because they had hood. Hood, singular. Uh... Color of their skin. Very, very trans... hollow looking. Color of eyes. Pink. Pink? <laughs> very! <laughs> Did they speak English? They didn't speak in my... didn't use words, was... And I thought... what they were saying. How about the inside of this place you were in? Talk about it. Describe it. G grout? Uh, no lights but gray and not very bright. Horrible, but very restful and no oval. Very big, no doors. How did the doors open? They were just there. How about furniture? No, no, only tables. And they're made out of what? Wood? Metal? Glass? No, no, no. Uh, not soft, not hard. Peculiar. What happens to you? They just... They move a thick bar over me. Describe that. Just a flat bar. About 30 feet long? 30 inches. <laughs> Ten inches wide, <laughs> not very thick, and honeycombed, just moving along over me. And what happened? Uh, vibration. Was the bar attached to any other piece of machinery? Uh, yeah, yes, above. Above. Can you describe that? Well, uh, it wasn't very big, just a rail? Went up, uh, don't know where to. At any time while you're in this thing, do you look out of any windows or holes down onto the earth? Oh, no, no windows. How about breathing? Can you breathe all right? No recollection of actually... Did you ask questions? I asked uh, where from, and they showed me. A map, but not a map. What do you mean by that? Lines and figures and things. Can you remember anything you saw on the map? A any figures, any shapes? Not f <sighs> curly shapes, wavy shapes. Numbers? Peculiar, not like ours. Did they tell you where they came from? Only remember Phobos. Phobos? What do you know about Phobos? I'm... Heard it. First time. 
What do you think Phobos is? Oh, no. Did you ask them where Phobos was? They showed. I knew they showed things. Saturn. They showed you things of Saturn. They may and... No. And others I knew. Describe roughly where they were. Did they say they came from Saturn? No, no. They said to give me some ideas as to where they are. They travel very fast. Not like we accept, but very fast. Almost instantaneous. How do they do this? Did you ask? Very, very... uh, Can't understand. Something to do with... Conversion with particles? Did they mention ions at all? I think so. <laughs> I remember ions, electrons, and other things, but I, I can't remember. Tell me about this small being you saw aboard. You said it was different from the others. Was it in charge? Was it serving the others? It was serving, I think. They didn't seem to be aware it was there. Uh, No, they weren't taking any notice of it. It didn't use... Language, it was chirps, noise, not sharp noises. And these beings, did they have arms and legs? Can't remember. Uh, Which ones? The tall ones. They had arms and legs, but they didn't seem to join. Can you tell me more about this smaller being? How was it clothed? Just fur. Not like fur. Like what? Like fur, but not fur? I I, I can't. Is there anything else regarding this experience on board this vessel that you feel you would like to mention? They they said they need us as hosts, and they know how, and, and they help. And they... And they are us. They... Are us. Tell me more about that. How can they be us? Y- you understand that? Talk about it. Won't, won't let me. John then goes silent for over a minute. <laughs> Should we act out the minute of silence? No? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> for John, a minute of silence. Uh, can you describe then, John, what happened after this experience and how you came out of the mist? Remember House to the Woods and then car juddered and and normal but we were very very scared and and got home very quick parked car took children in uh, had to carry karen and stewart um, asleep went in and elaine went and said time was late couldn't take that long to get home and then we phoned up tim oh It were a long while, half past one. What time should it have been? Half past ten. Wanted to watch program on telly and missed it. What program was it? I can't remember. Play, I think? At that time when you got home, did you have any memory of what had happened? No. When did you start to remember things? Don't know. I think this year? Not sure. What is your interpretation of what happened, do you think? Too long. What do you mean, too long? Must be written. Okay, just rest, John. Just rest. Just relax. So that was a big excerpt of the second session, just to give you an idea of exactly what their experience was like. And I just thought it was so interesting because it's so similar to so many of the other uh, interactions like this that we've seen. Uh, there was one that you did recently, Mathis, that was just like this. I don't remember which one it was, but that's a really interesting things to say about what happened when they got on the ship like that. Yeah, it's, there's definitely a lot of similarities there. Um, it's, I'm interested, I mean, it, uh, I have a lot of thoughts basically, and I don't really know where to start with them. Um, yeah, there's a lot of similarities there, but I don't, what does he, what does he mean? But it must be written that he needs to write a book that he has just a big, a big, a lot to say and that he needed to write it down. Must get yep. a publishing deal. <laughs> that's like that's my concern. Is like, is that the lead into him being well, like, he didn't I have to write, write a book, book about it? And he, yeah, sell he didn't it to write the a masses. book. Is that what you're wondering? 
Okay. Okay. Interesting. My biggest, mm. my biggest concern and problem with all of these, uh, like past regression mm-hmm. things is it always takes place much later. And it always is like after they have had time to in their mind mentally come up with something to mm-hmm. to have. And even if it's like a past regression of like, tell me what you saw. They have spent enough time in their day just being like, what did ha- like what it's the same issue that? with the Coronado group like, abductions mm-hmm. where they waited like two to three years. It's every <clears> single <throat> one where it's always, it, it, you know, it's always just like they've clearly had time to think or talk to someone about it. And it may not be that they faked it. But they've definitely put things in their head where they're like, well, when I regale you the story, this is what's going to come out. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. Like, it's always a little suspect to me, <laughs> but it's mm. fascinating. I'll say that. Yeah. We think about they are us. I, I mean, I think they are us is him saying that based on what you said, if I'm going to go down this rabbit hole with you, mm-hmm. the idea instead of these creatures being us from like the future, the past or whatever, he was saying, uh, they said they were going to use our bodies to like exist in our world for a little bit. And that's why things around the house are moved or whatever. Cause maybe they like, they take over, do some stuff and then snap them back to reality. And they don't realize they've changed things is like, I think mm. what he's trying to say. Well, what's interesting. If we take that bit rabbit hole and I join you, and I grab your hand, Jesse and say, take me down that rabbit hole. I'm with you. You go back, <laughs> Let's jump. you go back to what you've said, you, you know, where you said, well, if it's all one and the same thing, this, this, event if we take it at face value uh would feed into that of like paranormal um uh uh what's that freaking type of ghost that's like poltergeist it's like poltergeist? poltergeist poltergeist thank you jesus christ i've never seen the movie so you know i have just seven uh, how is this even possible <laughs> um but the poltergeist activity following a ufo abduction is very very weird it doesn't really ever happen all like i can't think again and i can't think of a common one to reference that matches that but if it's all one and the same and it's all this one weird essence of consciousness or reality that we don't truly understand, it would make more sense. But yeah, it's also man. weird that they saw a little furry creature aliens because that's not usual. And people wearing like I think freaking the, Dooku masks the, and shit like in Star Wars. The thing Wars. that's fascinating to me is when he's like, yo, their arms and legs don't connect. Like yeah, Rayman? And they never elaborated. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're like Rayman. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> Vector yeah, Man, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Vector Man. Sorry, Sega Boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it does have like all the hallmarks of a million abduction stories, but plus it, its own unique yeah. shit. Uh, and one thing in particular was very interesting. During the third session, this thing really makes this, I think, kicks this story into like overdrive a little the bit. Third, for me. Okay. Okay. During the third session, after briefly regressing to his 1640s life, plowing a field as one Jim Dalis, John returned to the abdu- abduction. And before he was done, reported that though the aliens would not say where they are from other than that they are us and that knowing more about their origin would serve no purpose, they would say that in 1979, a group would come together with a singular purpose, the likes of which the world hadn't seen in a century, but that the beings were only there themselves to, quote, observe and to lead through observation. And this is a very important moment now, because though there's a few things you should keep in mind regarding this encounter going forward into this uh, story that I'm going to tell you, uh, the last nugget of info about that group of people coming together in 1979 for special purposes is the most important, because that is the exact same message that another historical investigator and parapsychologist named Graham Phillips was getting from an ex-serviceman he was interviewing for an article that he was writing guy was named John Ward, who he had recently taught himself to astral project from his home in a place called Stourbridge. And he was having what he thought was a spiritual religious experience, astral projecting onto this other plane. And he comes back with dreams and a message for Graham telling him that in 1979, a group of people is going to come together. He said, quote, a nucleus of people would soon be brought together in central England by some mysterious intelligence and would be involved in an important quest, ultimately leading to a confrontation with something beyond their understanding. This strange coincidence brought Grant Phillips and Andrew Collins together, and they founded a paranormal research group together called Parasearch, and they went together to the first International UFO Congress in London, where their mutual friend, Martin Keatman, had just gotten a lead on a UFO story that reminded him of the Avely abduction, and on the spot, 
they all decided to go follow up and meet this person who was also at the convention together, which led them to their first meeting with Marion Sunderland. Okay, so Marion Sunderland is a woman who, back in 1976, Marion's nine-year-old daughter, Gaynor, was riding her bike home when she catches a glimpse of silver between a hole in some bushes in a field and stops to happen upon two beings in silver suits, one male and one female, exiting from inside their 30-foot-long shiny metallic craft to do something like take soil samples, like literally going into the ground and scooping things up into vials before noticing her and just sort of not running away, but just sort of like looking at her and just sort of like packing up and leaving. And ever since then, Marion said uh, her kids and, and herself had started to develop sort of a slight psychic affinity. And they were saying that it was manifest, manifesting around the home as poltergeist activity type stuff. Uh, you know, uh, weird presences being sensed around, getting brief, regular psychic impressions from the alien presence, maybe. They just feel a, a, a psychic impression and it's connected to that alien experience they had. Uh, over the years leading up to 1979, every couple months they have these experiences. However, suddenly, right there at the conference, Marion abruptly excused herself from the room for about 30 minutes before returning in a state. Uh, and Mathis, uh, here's an excerpt for you to read from a book called The Green Stone about what Marion Sunderland said that day. Yeah, Bing yeah, 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 yeah. They're there. We made it, Jesse. We made it, Jesse. I don't even know what to say right now. I'm in a, I'm in a different world. <laughs> it was like agitated hands. I could see in my mind's eye very vividly a woman with agitated hands. She stopped and shrugged. That's the best way I can describe it. A woman trying to warn you. Warn me, said Andy, puzzled. Warn me about what? You must think I'm silly, but is there a woman somewhere who wants to put money into your magazine? Quite a large sum? Andy's mouth dropped open as he stared back at her. Go on, he urged. I don't think you should accept it, she said slowly. At least, that's the feeling I get. I think there's something very wrong. The questioning looks of the three investigators prompted her to add more. I don't know what it is, but I think you've got to be careful. Very careful. There's something for you. She paused before continuing. Your group. There's something very important. She shook her head. I don't understand it. She appeared to be straining her eyes and ears, all her senses to hear, to see something around her. She continued hesitantly. Please don't think I'm crazy, but I've never felt anything like it before. It's almost as if you are all involved in something, something which has only just begun. And then, a few weeks later, Graham and Andy get a call from their other UFO pal, Terry Shotton, who is visiting a medium called Penny Blackwell in Staffordshire, who told them that he was about to be also involved with a group of people and that somebody was coming that they didn't understand what their goal was. And a spiritualist in London called Yvonne Perry also told Graham that they were all about to be involved in something crazy and very, very important. And suddenly there they all were back where we first began at the Parasearch headquarters, which will soon become the broken down Victorian building that started this whole story off two years ago. Next time on the Chiluminati podcast. Stop the and this time. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see it, but Jesse threw his headphones onto the ground and stormed out of view. You can't keep getting away with this. <laughs> yes, I can. I can and I will. Is that abduction story real, though? Th that abduction then? story is 100% real and completely okay. verifiable. Thank God. And this mm. time I already asked Michael beforehand, so it's not even rude. Happy 200 episodes, everyone. Please get ready for way more payoff than anybody ever wants on this next week. And for a very good long time after that, patreon.com slash Pod. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Please check out this man's podcast at Video oh, Game Apocalypse you. on the Laser Time Network. But Michael, let the people know where else they can find you if they're looking for you in these fractured and confused times. Uh, I sometimes write things for news.ubisoft.com. I have a Twitter at Wikiparas. That's W-I-K-I-P-A-R-A-Z. Not easy. Easy is a bot <laughs> account. But uh, <laughs> that's so brutal. That somebody made years ago and has stopped updating. Yeah. Um, but 
Yeah, videogamepocalypse.com. That's where you can find me every Friday. We talk about video games in a show that is way too long, about twice as long as this one. <laughs> uh, we talk about new releases. We talk about older games in a top five. It's a good time. Come come check us out. I will be there this week. Uh, you will be there. That's right. You'll be on this week's episode. Talk about ancient aliens So uh, in video games. So let's uh, we'll see you there. Follow, keep it coming. Thank you so much for being there. Happy 200. Happy 200, Jesse. I love you. Yeah, congrats, you guys. That's awesome. Thank you. Happy 200, everybody. We will see you in the Minnesota next week. Happy 200. Jesse, are you pleased or are you frustrated? you feel like you edged to blue ball them or are you still ready to burst? <laughs> see you next week, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs> anyway, me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside. And after a few moments, I hear my wife go, holy shit, get out here. So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky.